Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 190, Living in Buddha Standard Time. We're joined again by American Buddhist teacher Lama Surya Das to explore what it means to integrate our spiritual path into 21st century life. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. A big part of this conversation on how we can integrate spirituality into our daily lives in the 21st century, which is obviously a really unique time period in human history. And as we've been exploring, one of the hallmarks is this whole boom of information technology. We've been talking about this since the very beginning of this interview. And I wanted to also branch out because I know there's more to our particular time period than just technology, even though that's a really important piece. And I wanted to ask you a question how else can we bring together our spiritual understanding with our contemporary lives beyond just the bringing of technology and the wise use of technology into it? Well, that's a great question. And let me back up a little bit because it's very important to integrate spirituality into daily life. That's where the rubber meets the road on spiritual path in any time, in any era, and certainly now. Integration is the name of the game, not seclusion, not being a recluse, not separation, but integration, an integrated globe, recognizing interdependence, being autonomous within interdependence, not just independent and isolationist, but realizing autonomy within the facts of interdependence in our globe and our life and our relations and within ourselves also. But if we're going to talk about this era and now, I want to back up to part of the question you asked before, Vincent, which I didn't get to, which is about time. I hear people say, and maybe I used to think time seems to be speeded up in this technological issue, but I've been thinking about that a lot lately, and the new book that I'm writing is about time and awareness. It's called Living in Buddha Standard Time, which is the nowness, through nowness awareness. It's about having all the time in the world, because it's not time we lack, but focus, but awareness. You talked about how things are speeding up these days and with the technology and, you know, speed of travel, speed of communication, maybe speed of thought. I don't know. That's a tough one to assess. Is multitasking faster or not? Research has shown you get less done. I don't know. But I'm not sure time is really speeded up. Time is a big subject we could try to, you know, think about, but not to philosophize too much about this right now. Just let me say, if you think you can speed up time, let me posit you can also slow down time, that awareness slows down time. Most people have had an experience of time slowing down, maybe like in a traffic accident or while they're falling from a height or tumbling over beneath the waves and drowning or something. Or if you're in pain, a minute seems like an hour. What's the saying? The watched pot never seems to boil. You know, while you're waiting for the pot to boil, if you go away, it boils right away. And you like have to hurry back, it seems. But if you sit there watching it, it seems never to boil. Time is so elastic. And it's not just that it's speeded up in Sierra. It could also be slowed down if we're more aware. Maybe you've experienced that on some drug or something. Maybe you've experienced it in a dream or a vision. 
time can also be very slow motion. You know, the outer slowing down of time with slow motion film and all is just an image of how this feels internally when you're more aware. And by sharpening your awareness, as it were, by quicker processing the frames of awareness like a movie frame, every step seems to be slower. You can be very aware of lifting and moving your foot forward and shifting the weight in your abdomen and putting down the other foot and stepping on it without walking slower. I'm talking about by mind shifting, by more sharp and quick awareness, not thinking faster, quicker awareness. And this is attention training. This is an awareness training. This is part of samadhi or focused awareness. We can train ourselves in this way to be aware of more mind moments within one second or one minute. Be aware of the space between thoughts, not just the thoughts that we're caught in and so on. And slow down a little and be more present so we can choose how and if to respond to stimuli, not just blindly reacting. The secret of mindful anger management, creating some space between the outer stimulus and your reaction so you can choose how and when to respond. So I think that time is very elastic. And what did Einstein say? Time slows down so much when you're waiting to see if you can take that first kiss from a girl. That's Albert Einstein, by the way. I'm not making it up. So he doesn't just talk about E equals MC squared and how at the speed of light all mass is fused and so on, time and space continuum and different dimensions. He was actually saying that when you're keenly present and aware and involved wholly in something, when you're on the edge of your mental seat, time seems to slow down, like waiting to see if you can kiss that girl when you're young. And I thought that was just such a marvelous example, like the watch pot never seems to boil, which we can all relate to. So it's not like this here is time scarcity or time famine. It's just a matter of priorities and focus, how we use our time, how aware we are. Are we choiceful and intentional? Or are we just reacting and staggering forward on the treadmill of our to-do lists? Staggering forth of our daily tasks on the treadmill of these to-do lists on the momentum of our conditioning. Can we ever stop and get off and take a breath and start again or change speed or change direction? Is there no time for conscious reflection before action, individually and collectively? Look at the political situation, how much shouting back and forth there is. And a candidate hardly has time to do anything before they're involved in the next election to stay in office. Everything is so seemingly speeded up, but we can slow it down at the same time without wasting ourselves very much. It would actually have a lot of benefits. So I think as we talk about this era, of course there are ways to integrate spirituality into daily life. If you want to talk about slowing down, there's the Sabbath. Sabbath is an ancient Judeo-Christian tradition. In Buddhism, we would call that a one-day retreat. You can take time off for the spirit, or half a day, or a quarter of a day, or maybe one or two hours on Sunday morning or any time during the week, like having a daily yoga, prayer, or meditation practice. One can slow down and be more productive, just like having a vacation every year helps one be more sane and productive the rest of the year. It's not a waste of time. Working on your vacation is more of a waste of time and unfortunate. So I think integrating spirit with Dharma or transformative awakefulness into daily life is the real question today. And we have to find ways to do that. I have a few that I would just mention. I call it the six building blocks of a spiritual life. 
first a daily formal spiritual practice period, whether it's sitting in meditation or prayer or doing yoga, you know, whatever your spiritual practices are, chanting. Second, some form of spiritual study. If you're not a book warrior, it could be something like opening the book of nature or studying yourself, introspection, studying your relationships. So theory and practice, study and practice go together. So mm. you know what you're doing and you have more reflective attitude to life to understand the principles and connect the dots and grow in wisdom and discrimination. Third, inner growth work, very important. Could be therapy, could be men and women support groups, 12-step programs. Any form of inner growth work could be creative work could be gardening or art, whatever your art form is. So those first three, daily formal spiritual practice, second, some form of study, third, some form of inner growth work and self-inquiry and inner work, very important. Those are like alone-ish, although they can be practiced with others. And the next three are more with others-ish. Fourth is working with teachers, elders, experts, and mentors. We can learn a lot from them. They can save us a lot of time and help us, inspire us, encourage us give us some shortcuts and keys, help us keep going. So working with teachers and mentors, experts and elders. Fifth, group practice, being part of a community, opens our hearts, rounds off the rough edges, very important. We all need community of some kind. Community, congregation, sangha in Buddhism, satsang in Hinduism, beloved community, being part of it, belonging, as Martin Luther King called it. Beloved community, Sangha and Buddhism. And six, last but not least, some form of service, giving back. Seva, service to God through serving humanity. Service to the highest through serving the lowest, and so on. Service. So these second three, group practice, teacher practice, and service, or volunteering and giving back, compassion and action, are more with others-ish. And these six building blocks, I think, could form a very well-rounded and grounded, enlightening spiritual life. Even just doing one or two of them is enough. And at different parts of our life, we have more or less time to be alone or to be with others, different commitments and responsibilities, different energies and health situations. So we don't have to do them all, all the time. And the good news is, Vincent, I would say all of us are doing at least one of those or two of those already. Even if we're just a good parent or a good community member, a good worker, a good person, that's definitely important in one of those. So we need to make spiritual life personal and intimate, not just one size, off the rack, clothes, fits all. And it has to be a transformative spirituality, not just joining a religion or a group. That's the outer church, the outer religion. But the real church is the kindred spirits, is the spirituality at the heart of it, that we need to participate in and be part of. Be spiritual, live a spiritual life in every moment, at home and at work, not just on Sundays or some other high holy day. And the mystic heart of all that, the beating blood, the heart of it is the mysticism, is the direct experience, is really being in touch with it here and now, and it's changing one's whole life. So I think that's a non-sectarian, it's not a Buddhist, a non-sectarian, trans-sectarian, very postmodern enlightened program for today that anybody can do to integrate Dharma into spiritual life. Integration, not just seclusion. I know plenty of people that meditate, they're still a mess. They're still an alcoholic. They still have anger problems. They're still a mess. People do yoga, they could still be a mess. 
you have to change your life and have a well-rounded and grounded, intimate spiritual life. Be intimate with your true self, your soul, your inner broodedness, whatever you want to call it. That which is beyond, transcendent, beyond over any of us individuals, and yet imminent, inherent, imminent in each and every one of us, every moment. Beautiful. Thank you. I really appreciate you sharing that. I think this is a, a really deep and important point. Thank you. And I don't think it's any harder today or easier than in any other era, but I'm open to discussion about that. I don't even know that the world's in a worse place than it was before. Hmm. You know, when I grew up in the 50s and 60s, we crouched under desks at elementary school for fear of the nuclear war scenario. So now we're in danger of global environmental degradation. In the Middle Ages, there were plagues. You know, the Black Plague wiped out one quarter of the population of Europe in uh, the 14th century, I guess it was, or 1400s. The um, Mongol mounted warriors invaded China a thousand years ago. And they killed untold millions of people one by one by the sword. How is our world worse today, I ask you? (laughs) In many ways, it's better. Life expectancy, modern medicine, universal literacy, democracy. In many ways, it's a lot better. I think there's a lot to cherish and be grateful for. So I'm not sure that our world is going to the dogs. But anyway, I'm a dog lover and a dog myself. Woof, woof. (laughs) <laughs> nice. And it sounds like something in the way that you're sharing this connects in with your whole focus on what you're calling positive Buddhism, too. That there's some way in which we can talk about Buddhism that's more focused on the aspects around gratitude and appreciation and the, the luminosity. Could you say a little bit about that, too? Because it seems like an important shift in the way that you're teaching that may have something to do with our particular time and place. Well, This is coming out of the Buddhist tradition and the later teachings, turnings of the wheel, as we call it, the clear light teachings, the positivity teachings, the non-dual tantric teachings, the more inclusive teachings, not just the narrow, razor's edge, monastic teachings of early classical Buddhism. You know, the razor's edge and all that, of renunciation and remembering that life is suffering. There is no self and no God, and we have to get off the wheel of samsara. This is very basic classical Buddhism, but there's more to it. There was the Mahayana and Vajrayana revolution and development to include laity, the family. There were enlightened kings and queens and ministers. There's a lot more social engagement and social services in the later centuries. So I was inspired by that and also by the positive psychology movement of Martin Seligman and others, talking more about mental strengths and assets, not just pathology that so much of psychology and psychotherapy has been about, the pathologies. And I think sometimes Buddhism gets a bad rap in the West. Even the late Pope, who I really appreciated, in his book, Crossing the Threshold of Hope, that sold more than two million copies, there's a chapter called Buddha, question mark. And in it he says Buddhism is life-denying and nihilistic and all kinds of things which are totally untrue. And he should know better. His religious, his world religion advisor should have known better. Buddhism is all about hope and the possibility that every being, sinners and saints alike, Buddhists and otherwise, humans and all creatures, can become enlightened, can reach nirvana, can become like a Buddha, that all beings are endowed with the luminous Buddha nature. That's the positive side of the no-self. It means no separate little self that we're all endowed with the luminous Buddha nature. We're all Buddhas by nature. We only have to recognize that fact. That's the later teachings. 
this is something to be so grateful for, to rejoice in. Not just everything is empty. Sunyata is the luminous void of emptiness. It's the womb of emptiness, giving birth to everything, every moment. It's a miracle. That is us. It says there's infinite beings and infinite Buddhas. Those two sets are coextensive, totally intermingled. That's why I wrote the book of Awakening the Buddha Within. It's about the Buddha within, not the Buddha in ancient history. Buddha said anybody can become as enlightened as I have by walking such a path. Male or female, he broke the gender barrier 2,500 years ago. Learned or unlearned. And I'll go further, say Buddhist or otherwise. By walking such a path, anybody can awaken to the total positivity and promise that's in all the world religions. So I think that today, in these so-called dark days, in these troubled times, now we have economic stress in this country and world, you know, in this decade of depression, recession, whatever it is, not to mention how many people are taking antidepressants in this country. I think 5 million children have prescriptions for Ritalin, for attention deficit, hyperactive disorder, ADHD. These are very confusing and complex times, but I'm not sure they're worse than they ever were. And we have to face them with nobility and courage and patience also. And the resilience for this, I think a little bit more of the positive side to Buddhism could easily be stressed. We don't hear enough in Buddhism about forgiveness and gratitude. We hear a lot about, the, traditionally, I mean, about renunciation and faith and devotion and non-attachment. But we could stand to hear a little more about the positive Buddhist virtues of infinite generosity and impartial compassion, feeling with others, empathy, that life is not just difficult and dysfunctional, as it says in Buddha's first noble truth. But the third noble truth is that there is another life, the enlightened life, and the fourth truth is the path to it. So it's not just that life sucks, it's that the unenlightened life is full of suffering and dissatisfaction. Vincent, that's the first noble truth. The third truth is the good news. There is another kind of life within this life that we can experience, the enlightened life. This is a great message of hope. Nothing to do with nihilism or life denying. And I think that's very important. And it's not about getting to nirvana in the next life. It's about finding nirvana or freedom or enlightenment or bliss and peace within this very life here and now. That's the ancient Mahayana Buddhist teaching. That's positive Buddhism in a nutshell. So I myself am thinking about this and talking about this and trying to just highlight it a little so we don't give in to our own sort of depressive or existential angst kind of tendencies in this uh, over-information age, as I call it, where we think so much, we actually truly know so very little. The over-information age, as I lovingly call it. We think so much, we truly know and understand so very little. We don't even know how little we know. Even Socrates, the father of Western philosophy, when people said he was the wisest of people in Athens. He said, if I am, if that's true, it's because I know how little I know. So a little humility is also called for, I think, before the mystery and the, the vastness of this miraculous life. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology 
through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.